Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Wes. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here this morning. Uh, we, uh, we were gone last week, had a chance to get away with the family a little bit for a much-needed little vacation, and, uh, but it's great to be back uh, in uh, yeah, with you this morning here at North and back in Phoenix where it is, yeah, I mean, where we were, it didn't get above 75 degrees for like an entire week, and so you just forget how it's tremendously, extremely hot it is until you drive back in, you hit like, we were in LA, so you hit Blythe, and you get out in Blythe, and you're like, all right, here it is, and it's back. So, uh, but it's great to be back with you here this morning. Hope you all are doing well. Hope you're finding your time to get out a little bit and uh, enjoy some time away. But uh, this morning, we are uh, continuing, we're really winding down, actually, our series on the book of Ephesians. We've only got a few weeks left in our series called Being the Church, where we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. Today, we're going to be looking at the second half of Ephesians chapter 5. And one of the great things, though, about, about the last part of Ephesians is this is kind of where a lot of those most memorable or familiar passages are to many of us. If we know the book of Ephesians, probably some of your favorite passages or the most familiar passages that you know are going to come within these last couple of chapters. Starting today, we're actually going to hit on a very familiar passage, and it's probably likely that it's familiar to you for one of two reasons. Either you've heard it at a wedding uh, it's been a part of maybe some marriage books that you've read before. In fact, there's a really well-known book, marriage book called Love and Respect, where those two words are pulled right out of this particular passage, and an entire book is kind of written on these ideas. Uh, you may have seen it in other marriage books that you've read or come across it in marriage counseling. So that's one reason. Uh, there's also another reason. In another context, this, is, uh, this contains uh, probably what is one of the most controversial statements, at least in all of the book of Ephesians, uh, maybe even in all of the uh, New Testament, it is a phrase that is translated, wives submit to your husbands. And so we're going to talk about that here this morning. I really tried to give Wes, I tried as hard as I could to give Wes this, this passage last week, but I didn't think it was fair to have him cover all of Ephesians chapter 5, so we're going to have to cover it this morning. Uh, I'm kidding, of course, but I, I think I, I want to say this, is that as we get into this, although that statement kind of steals the focus in a lot of ways, we're going to talk about how that statement itself is not even necessarily the main focus, and in fact, a lot of the reason why this controversy happens around this statement, specifically even outside the church, but in some cases inside the church, is that it's more about, it's less about what this is actually teaching and more about how we have interpreted and applied this. And so what I want to get us to is a place where we really understand what is being said here and we can see how really beautiful this passage is. Because that controversy, that question about what does this really mean and how does it play out often steals the focus from what is really honestly one of the most beautiful central passages in all of the book of Ephesians. And so I think it's important to establish at the outset that although one phrase might steal our attention, uh, it's actually not the main focus of this passage. In fact, I want to read to you what I think encapsulates the main point of this passage ahead of time before we even get to it. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. It's actually uh, uh, the second to last verse of this chapter. It's where Paul kind of brings all of this discussion about marriage and husbands and wives and submission and all of this kind of mutual submission that happens within the church to a head, and he talks about it in this terms, that this is the point of it all. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, it says this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Now, I read that for us ahead of time because I want us to keep that in focus, that this passage is ultimately about the relationship between Jesus and his church. It has some instruction about our interpersonal relationships, including our relationships in the church and our relationships in marriage, and then the next two kind of uh, uh, places that we're going to look at going into Ephesians chapter 6 talk about things like family relationships in the, in the house with parents and kids. But ultimately, this is all pointing to this one main point, a picture of Jesus' relationship with his church and Jesus' relationship with us as believers. And so with that in mind, I think it, it, it kind of communicates to us and shows us how important context is when we interpret things like this. And with that being said, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. And before we even get to that passage that addresses wives and husbands and all the rest and marriage, we're going to see really how the context is set up in these few verses. Now these verses have a lot to say in and of themselves, but they also set for us the essential context to understanding then the commands that Paul gives us in terms of submission and relationships in the marriage, okay? So starting in verse 15, we're going to read through 21 to begin. It says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, we've seen this phrase, to walk, come up at least a few times in the past couple of chapters in the book of Ephesians. And you may know that in Scripture, the, the phrase to walk is a metaphor for what it means to kind of live our lives. So what this means then is that it's not necessarily a sum of the actions that I live in my life, but it's, it's the way that I'm living my life. The lifestyle is really what the walking piece points us to. This has more of an idea of how we live in a certain way. And so Paul is asking this, is really helping us answer this question of why it is that we live this certain way. And he tells us to live a life that is wise and not unwise. And so what he's, what he's focusing on is not necessarily the right things that we may do, but the right way to live. At least that's the aspect of walking. And if you think about it this way, the metaphor works out really well. Um, it's kind of how we, it has to do with kind of orientation and where we're going and the direction in which we are walking. For instance, when I'm, when I'm done with this message, I will walk off this stage and return to my seat. Now, the place that I have to go to get off the stage, of course, are those steps uh, to the left of me and to the right hand of the stage as you're looking at the stage. Now, for me to get to the place that I need to go to walk over there, my orientation is those steps so that I can get off the stage and return to my seat. Now, if I were to focus instead on just the steps that I'm walking, and I were to have my head down this way, just looking at my steps, um, of course, not only does this look ridiculous, but I might end up, by not looking at the orientation of where I'm supposed to be going, falling off the stage to one side or the other and completely missing the steps. In a lot of ways, this is what this, this idea of walking is all about. Paul's orienting us to the right way of living. It reminds me of what the author of Hebrews says when he says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because our walk is determined by where we fix our eyes on, where the orientation is, the goal to which we are living, and the purpose to which we are living out our lives. 
And so, in a lot of ways, I think it's important to remember this because we often just focus on, we have a tendency at times to just focus on living the right things rather than living the right way, and there's a distinction there. Jesus came along and condemned the Pharisees because they focused too much on just living the right things, the 613 laws in the Mosaic Law, the 1613 rules, the the steps, the right things to live. And he said, as a result, that added not only burden upon those who were teaching, those who they were teaching, but also it caused them to completely miss the point of Jesus' coming in the first place. So, at the same time, Paul is reminding us it's the way in which we live, but also that we still need to be careful about how we live. And he says there's a distinction between living wise and unwise. And really these contrasts that he presents, he presents three contrasts in the middle of this section, and they kind of direct us in the right way. These are the three contrasts that are present there. He says, we are to live not as unwise, but as wise, in verse 15b. Not as foolish, but as understanding what the Lord's will is. And then, not, and, then, and then in terms of not being drunk, but filled with the Spirit in verse 18. Not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Spirit in verse 18. So this general calling then, and what you can see is that these things actually build upon each other. The general calling is to walk in a way that is not unwise, but a way that is wise. And then he gets more specific with it. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If we're asking, well, what does it mean to live wise? He specifies, and he says, well, you should live according to an understanding of what the will, the will of the Lord is. Now, we've talked about this before in Ephesians. Paul uses the will of God or the will of the Lord a lot in this book. And the point that he's getting at is, is, is not necessarily what is God's will for whether or not I get this job or marry this person or purchase this vehicle, that kind of thing. That's sometimes what we think about when we think about the will of God. It's much more of a macro view of what God's will is. In other words, God's will through us and through the church Right? is to make Jesus known into the world. It's all about God's will to bring us to a place where we understand, according to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, the calling that we have been given in Christ Jesus as we follow him. And so when he talks about understanding what the will of the Lord is, of course it's built upon this idea that we are walking oriented towards the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we live that out, that's what it means to live wisely. And then he adds a, speci- a little bit more a specific instruction here with this last phrase in verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the question here is, is this can be interpreted a few different ways. Is Paul talking about not drinking alcohol at all for the Christian? Is this a prohibition on the behavior of drinking any amount of alcohol for the Christian? I think we have to look a little closer at how this is put together and how it's phrased. Paul's actually using a form of, of, uh, of, of Hebraic understanding and instruction that is present often in the Psalms or a place like Proverbs, where he's using parallel, parallelism. And so what this is telling us is that if you interpret this, or if you, if you translate it this way, which is a kind of a faithful way to translate this, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's intentionally making a contrast there, and the contrast being on this aspect of, being, of what we are filled with. It's less about the wine per se or the alcohol per se and what we are being filled with. That phrase filled or that phrase being drunk has to do with what controls us, what leads us, what takes control of our lives. So the question is, are we being controlled and led by the Spirit or are we being being controlled and led by not only could it be drunkenness, 
but it could be a myriad of other things that might fill or control our lives. It could be being filled or led by anger or hatred or jealousy. It could be controlled or being drunk by an addiction to social media. I mean, it could be all of these things, right? The aspect, of the focus is, are you filled with the Spirit, or are you being led or filled by any myriad of other things? That makes sense. Of course, he uses the example of wine because drunkenness is one of those things. doesn't mean that uh, any amount of alcohol is prohibited from a Christian's life, but the question is, is wine leading to, or in, is, it in, is, is an engagement with something in our world leading to a place that it's controlling our lives in an unnatural way that d- distracts us and takes us away from life in the Spirit? So, if we then have a question about what does it look like for life in the Spirit to be lived, Paul provides us then with verses 18, in verses 18 through 21, with a view of what it looks like to live by the Spirit. And he gives us a list of a few things here, a list of a few behaviors. Speaking to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, making music or making melody. Giving thanks, and then submitting to each other in reverence to Christ. Now, we see this list here, and of course, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. There are a lot of other things that we could add to this list that would be characteristic of life in the Spirit, of fruit of the Spirit. And for many of us, maybe we probably wouldn't even pick this list if we, were to, if we were to talk about what it looks like to live life in the Spirit. But I think it's important to recognize that Paul didn't pick these arbitrarily. I think there's a reason why he picks these in particular. And notice, though, that he talks about speaking to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and singing and making music. Now, I don't know how you feel about this singing and making music part. I think maybe for some of us, we have mixed feelings, at least about our own singing and our own ability to sing. But I do want to say this, I do feel like the way that this is phrased, this is an imperative to tell us that we should be singing to one another and making music to one another, which is an interesting way to phrase it because we think about when we come in to worship and we may sing a song or there may be music being played, that we are singing and we are making music to God, which of course is true. But the way that Paul phrases this is that we are actually singing and, and making music towards one another. So that there's this aspect that happens as we gather together in worship where we're actually singing to one another as an encouragement and as 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 an upbuilding of the body. Now, I personally love worship or music in corporate worship. In fact, one of the things that I miss the most when we shut down and we had to go online and do all those things is that we didn't get to gather and sing together. And here we're told, though, and and, and you may or may not share that same kind of perspective and opinion, but here's the thing is that we are told in this case that actually singing is a command, an imperative for us to engage in with one another in corporate worship. That there's something about the singing that goes on, and you, you know this, you can see this, when you gather with other people who share the same faith, and you're singing these wonderful words about God and our faith, it has a way of encouraging one another and as I see you singing it, and you see me singing it, and we're singing it in joy, it reminds us of the joy, and again, the thankfulness that is a natural response to what God has done. Now, singing also has a rich history in Scripture. Uh, there are some scholars who believe that all, all the way back in Genesis 2 is actually the first song that has ever been sung by a human being. It was Adam when he received Eve and he saw her. Right? There's a short little poem or song there. Whether or not it's a song, if it is a song, it's a song of praise to God for what he has provided him. He's provided him with this beautiful, wonderful companion, this other human being. And then it's also kind of a love song as well. So if that is in fact the first song 
that a human being ever sung. It was a praise song and a love song all at the same time. But whether or not that's a song, we see songs all throughout the Bible. The book of Psalms itself is full of all these songs that are a response to who God is and what he has done. Big aspect here, important in singing. And, and look, it doesn't say anything about whether or not you like your singing voice, whether or not you feel like you're competent to sing, whether or not you have a... I mean, if we only allowed people who had a, a professional level of, a, of singing ability to sing here on Sunday mornings, I mean, no offense, there'd probably only be a handful of us actually allowed to sing, right? And the band, I mean, we can talk to Aaron about this, but really, when the band comes up here to lead us, they're not here to perform for us. They're here to lead us into worship so that we all participate in the singing together. And so I realize that you may not think you have a great singing voice. This reminds me of, uh, of actually uh, one of my favorite people. Uh, he passed away several years ago, but uh, my wife Katie's grandfather. Um, his, and <laughs> her grandmother still tells us these stories to this day. He had one of the worst singing voices that you've ever heard, apparently. But he sang his heart out every time he was at church. And his singing voice was apparently so bad that often the people who were sitting in front of him would just kind of slowly spread out and spread away so that they wouldn't be in direct earshot of his singing during corporate worship. And she would tell these stories while he was still alive, and he sit, I could still picture him sitting at the table and just throw up his hands and say, so what? I'm there to sing, and that's what I'm doing. i got to tell you, I'd love to have, it would be great to have just a, 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 a room full of Katie's grandpa singing badly, singing out of key to the glory of God. Because it's not about us singing well, per se. It's about us singing from our hearts out of gratefulness and thankfulness to God. And singing to one another as well. Also, no, and, and also notice then that feeds into this attitude of being thankful. And not just necessarily having a thankful attitude or just being thankful in general, but being, being thankful in particular in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, reminds us specifically of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So Paul is telling us it's not just about having an attitude of thankfulness, as important as that can be. It's not just about us being thankful for the various blessings in our lives that we can count in our lives around us. It's about being specifically thankful for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We can go all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1 through, verse, or, or through chapter 3 to see all the reasons that we have to be thankful in the name of Jesus Christ because of what he has done. All of which brings us then to this last commandment that we're given here. And I said earlier that, you know, there are all kinds of different actions that we could make a list of and say this is life of the Spirit. And as we see this list, we might pick a different list if we were to talk about what it looks like to live life in the Spirit. I'm convinced, though, in this case, um, that if it was up to us, we definitely would have chosen something different than being called to submit uh, in Christ, Right? Because I think submission in a lot of ways has almost become a little bit of a dirty word in our, in our culture. Uh, we don't all agree on much. There's a lot of things we disagree on in our world today, in particular in our country. But I think if there's one thing that we all agree on culture-wide, it's that we don't want to submit to anything. Uh, we don't want to submit to authority, to people, to organizations, to governments, none of it. And I think when we're called in this case to submit, it kind of you know, challenges us. It, it, it prods us in a different way. Maybe then we're used to. Now, what does it mean then to be to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? What does that actually look like? Well, the word for submit here is the Greek word uh, hypotasso, which means literally to arrange ourselves underneath someone or something else. 
So the action of submission means to deliberately place ourselves under someone else or under something else. And although this might fight against our modern sensibilities, we see the command to submit all over Scripture. We're told to submit to God. We're told to submit to His Word. We're told when appropriate to submit to authority, both government and church authority. And then here we are told to submit to one another within the church. And as it, as it always is when it comes to submission, we are told to submit for the sake of Christ, and we are told in this case to submit out of reverence or out of fear of Christ, which we'll talk a little bit about what that means in a minute. So what does this ultimately mean? It ultimately means that we're called to submit because Jesus himself modeled this for us. We're to submit for his sake, for his namesake, for his reputation, and then to follow the model as Christ followers, the way that he submitted himself. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul famously describes the submission of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, whom though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, catch what Paul says here. He essentially says this, that Jesus... Although equal to God the Father in every way, equal in nature, equal in character, equal in power, equal in rights, laid all of that down in submission to the Father's will, which required him to then take up the form of a servant, submitting his rights and submitting his very life to death on a cross for our sake and for the plan of God the Father's salvation. This is the model that we are called, the model of submission that Paul has in mind when he tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Klein Snodgrass says this, Our society emphasizes equality, but mutual submission is a much stronger idea. With equality, you still have a battle of rights. Equality can exist without love, but it will not create a Christian community. With mutual submission, we give up rights and support each other. Mutual submission is love in action. I think when he talks about particular in terms of rights, it's important to remember because submitting, what makes submitting at, at many times so difficult in our culture to do is because so many times we want to affirm our rights and our personal freedoms as the most important things that we have. But we have to realize that there may become times where submission forces us in, to use our freedom to willingly give up our rights to submit to something else. Our rights are not primary. Honoring Jesus is what is primary in this. And we might need to submit for the sake of his name, for the sake of his reputation in the world, and even for the sake of modeling what Jesus did. We are told to do that in this case. And it applies in many different spheres in our lives, but it applies certainly to the relationships that we have with one another in the church. And I think this is exactly, when we're talking about love in action, this is exactly what Jesus showed in his submission. I think if we were talking about rights in this way, if we were to think about it this way, if Jesus asserted his rights over his submission, we would not be saved. Because certainly he had the right not to go to the cross, right? I mean, Jesus didn't go to the cross for his sin. He was sinless. He went to the cross for our sin. But he had full within his rights not to go to the cross. 
God the Father, if he was acting within his rights, we would not experience salvation or grace either because he had every right to condemn us in our sin. And yet he chose out of his love, out of his love to provide salvation for us, not out of his rights. And as Paul said, have this mind, the mind of Christ which is yours by the Spirit. The wise way is the way of submission. So with that in mind, we're now ready to engage with this next section. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. And it says this. And I'm going to repeat verse 21 again because it's so important to what this says. We have to keep this in mind. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit everything to their husbands, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself uh, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I think it's important to say on the front end of this to reiterate this fact. When we're talking about the act of submission or relationships in submission, it has nothing to do with our value or equality at all. Again, submission means willing to place ourselves under someone else. Remember what we have seen Paul say already is that Jesus is equal to God the Father. And he did not cease to be equal in nature or character or essence with God the Father when he submitted. He was still equal to God the Father. But he chose to submit. And so that's the model that we're provided with here in terms of our relationships with one another as well. The act of submission didn't change Jesus' value or worth uh, in his submission. And so I can't stress that enough really because I believe that uh, we have to keep in mind that we live in a culture where we value people by their position, by their power, and by their influence. So the people who have more power, people who have more influence, people who have better position, they are ten- we tend to consider them as more valued or worth more than others who might be subordinates of them or might not have as much power as them, might not have as much influence as them. That's how the world values this. And so if we were to look at it from the world's standpoint, of course, it makes it very difficult for us to submit because submitting a position means that we are submitting also our worth and our value, which is not what this is calling us to do in any extent at all. This is not, that is not Jesus' kingdom. Position and role do not equate to worth. So what is it then that, that, that determines our worth? Well, first, our worth is determined by the fact that we were created in the image of God. Every human being, no matter the power, the position, or influence we have in this world, are equal worth, are of equal worth by being created in God's image. That is it. That's what determines our worth and our value as human beings. And so, 
Secondly, our worth in the eternal kingdom of God is determined by God's spirit in us. This is why Ephesians points out at the very beginning, right? You have been given everything, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places as heirs in Christ. What makes us valuable in the kingdom of God is our eternal, uh, our eternal status as heirs with Christ. That's where our value, that's where our worth comes from. Our identity in Christ. This is why Ephesians points out that we've all been brought into the same family together and a place like what Paul writes in Galatians reminds us that in the kingdom there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Because in the day those were the social markers that established the value of one group over and against another. Of course if you were, if you were a slave you were worth less than the man who was free inherently as a human being. But as Paul says, in the kingdom, those are, artificial, those are artificial markers of value. And they don't matter because we are all together in Christ as heirs. And that's our eternal value. And look, when we understand this, we can see why the act of submission, rather than being something that we should be afraid of or concerned about or nervous about, is actually a beautiful representation of the gospel love of Jesus. It's actually, in a lot of ways, the most reasonable response to the faith that we have in what Jesus has done for us. Because we cannot lose our value, we cannot lose our eternal standing, all of that is already secured in Jesus, so we are free to submit in whatever case we may need to. So as much as the world would try to tell us otherwise, position and influence do not determine value in the kingdom. And we need to really let this sink in before we engage then what it looks like in the marriage relationship to submit to one another, wives and husbands. Because when Paul addresses wives and husbands here, he is first addressing them as persons of value in the kingdom. In other words, what Paul is saying is, first and foremost, before you are wives and husbands, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are fellow heirs with Christ in the kingdom. And now that he's established that for five, four and a half chapters, then he finally gets to this place where he says, okay, now as wives and husbands, as parents and children, this is now the way that this looks in your everyday life. So then with all that context in place, let's talk about this statement, wives submit to your husbands, because this is uh, actually an imperative command. We have to remember a couple things. First, remember that this statement doesn't stand alone. It has context all the way around it. The statement right before it says we're to submit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's tied to this one. You can't read it without that context. And it comes under that heading. And then the command for wives is also joined to the hip for the command to husbands as well. I think that's important to remember because this is often isolated as a command that's given to wives, divorced of the context that's all around it. And that's where we start to get off the rails in applying what this actually looks like in our everyday lives. We have to pay attention to also the context that follows these commands. Remember in verse 32, right? The main purpose of this is that the marriage relationship, the way that husbands and wives submit to one another in the marriage relationship is to picture Christ's relationship to the church. So I said earlier, of course, this is one of the most misunderstood phrases in the New Testament, and it's usually for that reason. We separate context from it, and standing alone, unfortunately, this has been used in so many different cases, um, as, quite honestly, ways that men have just asserted their dominance over women, even within the church, and even within some marriages. And this does not, for example, require 
a force, uh, this command does not force women into a role of inequality first and foremost. Uh, it does not, for example, require women to obey their husbands or, or for husbands to force their wives into submission. This is not a license for men to hold this over their wives to force them into a submissive role. And any husband, I think, who, who, who wants to demand submission from his wife based on this passage is missing the point of the context of all this. And unfortunately, that has happened way too many times in our churches sometimes and even in our marriage relationships to the point of spiritual abuse happening in marriages and the church being, not being a safe place in some cases for women to be in relationship to men. And because of what this says and because of how we've often chosen to interpret it, and because it's been unfaithful to what this actually says, the results have shown the fruit of disobedience and the fruit of sin, because that's ultimately what this is when we get this wrong. And I think where that's happened, we need to confess it and we need to repent of it, because it is the fruit of sin and evil. To be clear, this is a command that is given to the wife from the Lord. It's not a command given from the husband to the wife. This is a command given from the Lord Jesus to the wives to basically say, just as I have submitted, you're to follow my model as your Lord, as your ultimate head. And in the same way, the command is given to the man to say, just as I have died and given my life for you, you're to follow in the same way to give your life and to lay down your life for your wife, for the upbuilding and encouragement and nourishment of your wife. And so the wife is called to submit in the same way that Jesus submitted. Not, not because she is not equal to her husband, but out of a response to the Lord who has submitted on her behalf so that she might be saved and brought into the family of God. She submits, as Paul says, because the husband is the head of the family, and this is how God has designed it. But again, we need to define what we mean also by headship. Headship in this case does not mean power over, but means responsibility for. That has to be a, a, an important distinction that we make in this. Headship is not power over, but it is responsibility for. And what is the responsibility of the husband? It's given to us right in that next section. It's spelled out. The calling, the command that is given to him is that he must love his wife as Christ loved the church. Again, the calling is given to the husband not in respect to his wife and what she has done, but in respect to Christ and what Christ has done on behalf of the, of the Christ-believing husband. Namely, that he's given his life for the church, that he has selflessly loved the church in such a way that he would die for her and love her in a way that nurtures her and presents her as healthy because of his provision and his nourishment for her. So in other words, the husband is to lay down his life in such a way that is focused on blessing and the benefit of his wife. He's to selfishly love her in a way that actually submits his life to a place where she is being nourished emotionally, spiritually, and physically. So that just as Jesus presents the church as holy and blameless, it's the husband's role to present also his wife as somebody who is nourished in her spiritual life, who is encouraged, and who is supported by his self-sacrificial love. And as you look at this, I think what emerges then is that the husband is actually called to a greater aspect of submitting his life and laying down his life for his wife. When you consider the, uh, when you consider the uh, historical context of this, we look at this and we read it and think to ourselves, okay, and the, the statement that comes out that's most controversial is, is, is wives, you know, submit to your husbands. But in what, and when this is originally written, in the historical context of when this was originally written in the first century, the most controversial statement out of all of this would be, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Because in that culture, 
Wives were essentially property of their husbands. They had no rights. And so for Paul to write something like this was actually, uh, was actually seen by the Romans as a destruction of their social order. For Paul to say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay down your life for her on her benefit would have been hugely scandalous in the first century. So if we look at it from that standpoint, what we're to see is that what Paul is explaining in context is that the husband is not the, is not the head as the dominant authority, but the, head, the husband is the head as the one who has responsibility. So in many ways, the husband himself leads in his submission of the mutual submission between husband and wife. He leads by example. This is why a husband who demands obedience and submission from his wife is misunderstanding this text because functioning, because it's in terms of functioning from the aspect of mutual submission towards one another. Now, for today, probably, I think, it, 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 of course, the reason for all of this is that as we, as we move down in this, in this passage, Paul is pointing us to the fact that the marriage relationship has a greater calling than just for two people to be involved in a power play with one another about who gets to say what and who gets to do what. In reality, what this marriage relationship is supposed to be about is about representing the love that Jesus has for the church. It is a walking, talking representation of the love that Jesus has for his church. And that's seen in no better picture than two people being willing to outdo one another in mutual submission, loving one another in a marriage relationship. This relationship itself is supposed to remind the couple then of the very love that Jesus has for them as a believer. So as you're living out your marriage relationship, your marriage should look like the gospel in such a way that it's a constant reminder of how much Jesus loves you by the way that your spouse loves you. Now, we don't do all this perfectly, right? Obviously, uh, we don't do this perfectly. But this should be the way of walking. This should be the pattern overall of our lives. It should be the orientation by which we orient all of our relationships. And by the way, this is not just the marriage relationship between the husband and wife, but also the mutual submission that happens within the church. So that it boils down to the family, so that if we have kids and we're married, our kids should be able to look at their parents and say, that's an accurate representation of how Christ loves the church, or at least it's a shadow or a picture of how Christ loves the church. We should be able to encourage one another as we come together in community, as we see other marriages in church community. The way that we love one another in our marriages should remind other people that know us about how much Jesus loves the church. It's an ongoing living witness of that. And not only is it pictured in mutual submission between the husband and wife, but as Paul said, it's also pictured in the oneness and the closeness of this relationship. As Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2 in verse 31 here in Ephesians 5, the husband and wife cling to each other and become one flesh together so that that oneness, even in spirit and even in body, represents the mystery of the intimate relationship that Jesus has with his church. And every believer, every, again, we're underlining a theme that has been happening from the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, that every believer is joined to Jesus in that kind of an intimacy. We are in Christ by his spirit living within us. And then we are joined to one another as the body, intimately connected to one another. The marriage relationship represents and reminds us of that as well. That in the end, that this calling, this relationship of marriage, or this relationship of marriage is a calling. 
It's a calling to be a husband. It's a calling to be a wife. If you choose to get married, that comes with a calling to fulfill from the Lord himself. In fact, I think wedding ceremonies that are done well, if you've seen a wedding ceremony that's structured well, it actually pictures exactly what this looks like as a husband and wife to enter into this marriage relationship. You may not have realized this before, but you, know, you, you may know if you've, if you've been at a wedding, you recognize the fact that when the bride and groom come up at first, they are facing towards the altar or they're facing towards the officiant. That's done by design. Because, and especially in wedding ceremonies that I do, the, the idea is that you are making your promises first and foremost to God because God is the one who has established marriage as his idea. And our calling as a husband and wife, yes, there is a calling to one another, but ultimately our primary calling is to make promises to God based on our calling as a husband and a wife because he's giving us that calling. And then it's only after we've made our promises to God then that the bride and the groom turn towards one another and make their vows towards one another in their relationship, their promises towards one another. And it's a picture of the fact that being a husband and being a wife has its calling attached to it. And its calling is ultimately to represent something bigger. So the question I'm sure we all want to know is how does this work out practically in our marriages? What does this look like practically from day to day in our marriages? And I would say it depends. <laughs> I would say the things that are key, the things that are essential is that we are mutually submitting to one another, that we are loving each other the way that Christ loves the church, and that we are understanding ultimately what it means uh, to encourage one another towards headship in Christ, and we understand first and foremost that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we are husbands and wives uh, in Christ as well. But it depends on your marriage relationship. Each marriage is a little bit different in terms of how this plays out. Um, but, in the end, there are some maybe non-essentials that we might talk through, right? I, I've had, there, there have been people, of course, that I've heard say, you know, uh, one of the ways that we handle this in terms of decision-making in our marriage is that um, we discuss things, but in the end, because my husband is the head, he makes the final decisions on things that happen in our household. I would say that that is a perfectly acceptable way uh, to incorporate and apply this in your life. Certainly, um, if, if, the wife is not being forced into submission in this case, but she is choosing willingly to play that role. I would also say, though, that that's not commanded in this scripture. It's not, we're not told anything about how to make decisions in day-to-day -day marriage, and I don't think that's commanded in this either. For some of us, it might look like husbands and wives making decisions together, and maybe the wife from time to time having uh, the final say on a decision. I think that's fine, too. I mean, I don't think husbands make all the best decisions just by nature of the fact that their husbands are men. In fact, in our, our marriage, in my marriage with, with my wife Katie, um, there are some times where I would be wise to defer, and, and maybe am wise at times, uh, in spite of myself, to defer to her in decision making. Because ultimately what we're looking at is, what can we, how can we make the wisest decisions for our family, for our kids, and how can we best represent Christ in the way that we make our decisions? That means sometimes that when it relates to things like kids or school or their activities, my wife has better insight and better experience into making those decisions because she's a teacher, she knows about school, and she's more intimately involved in the activities that the kids have because she spends a lot of time you know, uh, with those activities with them. And so in a lot of those cases, she makes the decision. There are also other things that I make the decision on, like our finances, for example. I am involved in our finances, I manage all of our finances in the house, so I tend to make those decisions related to finance. In the end, the question is not, in the, in the end, I think what we have to stay away from is the question is not who has power in the end in the relationship. 
This is not about a power play that goes back and forth when we're talking about submission to one another. It's about mutual submission to represent Jesus in the way that we are making our decisions and by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So I'll begin, or I'll end as I began this sermon with a focus on the reality that this relationship, when we talk about marriage, when we talk about even our relationships within the church, are made to represent the greatest of all relationships, which is Jesus' relationship, his eternal relationship with his church, with us as a community and with each of us as individuals. It's, it's kind of the, the picture of the greater to the lesser. If we have that greater relationship in mind and we understand that greater relationship, it'll inform at every level the relationships that we have in our lives, our friendships, our marriages, our, 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 our church relationships and our church families, all those kinds of things. And the common focus is that through Jesus' relationship with the church, this greatest relationship gives us understanding to the rest of them so that these relationships all become powerful reminders of that wonderful mystery of the love that Jesus has for his church. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we've discussed a lot today. We've had a lot to go through in terms of what this has to say to us. And I pray, Lord, that where uh, this is, is still a bit um, nebulous for us, Lord, that you would continue to give us understanding. Um, these are big ideas. Uh, we thank you that uh, the wonderful idea of what it means for Jesus to love the church can be even played out as a reminder in our relationships, that you have given us that ability by your Spirit to live in this way. Uh, but we confess, Lord, that oftentimes it is difficult in terms of what that looks like day to day to live in this way that Paul has called us to, to live wisely according to the Spirit. And so we ask for your wisdom this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would give us even greater insight into our marriages. I do pray for the marriages in this church. A marriage is not an easy thing. <laughs> your word tells us that. Paul even admits that marriage is full of trials and troubles at times. We are two broken people who are trying to live together to the best of our abilities. And, and so when, we, and when it comes to thinking about mutual submission and representing uh, this great relationship between Jesus and the church, that can be overwhelming for us. Uh, but Lord, you have called us to that. And I pray that you would give us the grace and the wisdom and the understanding to pursue that at all costs. It's great to have... Um, plans and steps for how we might prove our marriage, but ultimately, this is the greatest key to marriage that you give us in Scripture. That we would understand, out of reverence for Christ, how to submit to one another. And that we would outdo one another in loving each other as husband and wife, and even within the church. We wouldn't be keeping track of who's got more power, who's got more influence, but we'd be looking to selflessly lay down our lives for the benefit of the other person. In every case, Lord, would you teach us? That starts with us understanding a deeper knowledge of what you have done for us. And so as Paul says, would we have this mind that is in Christ Jesus, Lord, we ask for that mind. That in everything, he would be made preeminent. That in everything, he would instruct the way that we live. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. So Custers are our uh, prayer partners for today, so if there's anything you need prayer for, uh, you can go see Rick and Leanne, and they'll pray with you about anything that's going on. If there's a burden that, in particular, you would love to share with somebody as you go to prayer with God, this is something that we provide an opportunity for you to do that. If there's something going on uh, in a family member's life or whatever it may be, um, they're there to pray with you. Another way that we want to support one another in prayer is we have prayer cards that are located on the table as you leave here this morning. Uh, if you would fill out one of those prayer cards and drop it in the offering stand as you leave here this morning, uh, we will make sure that gets to the right place. We, we essentially give those to our staff, to our prayer team, and to our elder team, and so that each week we pray over each one of those requests as we have opportunity uh, to, to share with one another um, those prayer burdens and those opportunities to support and encourage one another. So, um, so do that. If there is anything that you need prayer for, we look forward to being able to do that with each other each week. So hope you have a great week. Hope you enjoy uh, your week uh, wherever it may lead you. And we look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.